crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and in this episode I'm talking to Julian Watkins, a professional sailor turned social scientist who I worked with for a year or so at the Environment Agency, England's environmental regulator. I have to say, we don't spend too long on Julian's current role. As you might have gathered, his is a fascinating story of serendipity, so we dive right in, and it's only fair to warn you that Julian is brutally honest about the mental health challenges he's faced. While it's not all doom and gloom, this is definitely a heavier episode than normal, so if issues such as bullying, ME, eating disorders and depression are not what you want to hear about right now, then I'd suggest giving this one a miss. That said, Julian's story is incredibly inspiring, so if you want to learn more about how potentially negative experiences can lead to unexpectedly positive outcomes, then keep listening. Okay, housekeeping. You might have seen that I've warily dipped a toe into the Twitter swamp, so if that's your thing, then please do check me out there using the handle at soupserendipity, or one word. As ever, there are a couple of little swearies hiding in this episode, so watch out for little ears nearby. But other than that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of serendipity soup. My name's Julian Watkins. I'm a social scientist working for the Environment Agency. So the social science team works across the whole of the business. So I do work on flooding, air quality, quite a lot of data analysis, but also organising focus and working groups, adding social scientific input into wherever it's needed, really. So that can be reviewing methodologies, talking to people about different bits of work they're doing, involving ourselves wherever we can uh, to try and keep things as people-focused as possible. When you say social science, what does that mean in in practice? About making sure that people stay at the centre of things, and more importantly, that the differences between different types of people remain at the centre of things. Certainly that's a big part of social science. It's important to me. So if you think about a policy around air quality, you you might have a national policy that's quite general, that's built around bringing levels of NO2 or or particulate matter down. But then it's, is that suitable for everyone? How does that play out on the ground? How do people who maybe live in areas with bad air quality, but don't drive a car because they can't afford to how does bad air quality impact on them what the policies mean for different types of people and how can you make policies or make interventions or changes that positively impact the most people possible it sounds like it's a focus on fairness as much as anything yeah that's a good summary and that's how i met you obviously through the environment agency 
but it's not what you've always done. So do you want to take us back to the beginning? So you were educated at a school in Jersey. Were you born there? Is it were you born and brought up there? I was. My dad is originally from Jersey. My mum is from Newport in South Wales. And she was on holiday in Jersey, was visiting her cousin, who happened to be a very good friend of my dad's. And she went over there for two weeks and then went home back to Newport, quit her job, went straight back to Jersey. Four years later, married my dad. I was born and brought up there. Yeah, and a really, really nice place to, to grow up. Very different. There's 100,000 people there and, and you have everything that a city has, but just in a slightly different layout, really. The only thing that we don't have in Jersey is universities. That's the biggest thing that's missing. Everything else, every other type of education you have, all the job opportunities, where parts of people might take for the most part are there. Universities is the big thing, which I think is, is usually the point where people make that decision to move away but yeah but that's where that's where I grew up right what happened after school then where did you head I moved to the UK so I wanted to be a professional yacht sailor in fact I was a professional yacht sailor from the age of 20 and to do that in Jersey just wasn't an option Jersey is is quite heavy finance was very heavy tourism is less so now and then you have all the sort of standard hotel service industries that any city needs and quite a lot of conservation in jersey there's a whole eighth of the island that's a a conservation site and there's a very famous zoo on jersey which is the conservation center which was started by joe dole for the sort of sailing that i wanted to do there wasn't an option to do that in jersey right so i have done a bit of sailing i grew up on the wirral but the only things i ever sailed were were kind of small mirrors toppers small boats one or two sails that's about it my guess is that you're talking slightly bigger than that. Yeah, but what I started in was toppers and stuff like that. Okay. So I started dinghy sailing when I was about 10 and did it every week. It was just a hobby. Mm-hmm. I wasn't particularly sporty when I was younger and didn't have too many interests particularly. I was sort of fairly directionless as a child. Sailing was a really good thing that I did every weekend, weeks during the summer, evenings sometimes during the summer as well. It was never a career path. There was no sense for a long time that it would be. It was just a, a thing mm. I enjoyed doing. There was meant to go down a sort of more traditional path, really, school, university, get a job, fairly sort of linear progression. I had always intended it for it to be. I think where things changed was when I was 16, which was when I went for a week sailing with an organization called the Ocean Youth Trust, who are a a sail training organization. And there's a load of sail training organizations around the UK who run boats that are 70 foot long and will take a dozen young people and a few adults, generally volunteers, but usually a couple of paid staff on. And you tend to spend five to seven days on them in most cases learning how to sail obviously that sort of me going on at 16 I, I knew how to sail pretty well already got an opportunity to go on one of those during the summer just after I finished my GCSEs like it was a very very life-changing moment and so I, I moved schools when I was 14 and then mm. from the period when I was 14 to 16 I was very very miserable I was really badly bullied at school when I was 16 I was five foot two five foot three and I weighed about 16 stone so I was huge and um, compulsively overweight. Looking back on it now, those were sort of the first eating disorders I suffered with, was just like compulsively overeating to deal with misery and stress and being bullied. And as I say, I was quite, I was quite directionless at the time. I, I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to be. 
I didn't do very well in my GCSEs and, and a lot of that looking back as well was because all I tried to do at school was stay out of the way, stay hidden, didn't want to do well at anything, didn't want to draw any attention to myself, didn't want to be passionate about anything. The only thing I had that I was passionate about was, was sailing, which was the thing I did outside of school. But then I went sailing with the Ocean Youth Trust and met a group of people who embraced me and, and praised me for who I was. Within a couple of days, I was running around really happy, happiest I've been in years. And not only was I enjoying myself, I was teaching other people as well. Like all the other uh, young people on board hadn't sailed before. So I was getting involved, teaching them how to do stuff. Yeah, and just had a really great time. And at the end of that week, I was asked, would I like to come back and volunteer the year afterwards and get involved with the organization that way? More importantly, the skipper was a professional yacht sailor, one of the first people I'd met who sailed as a career, as well as being like the happiest I've been in years. I think that sparked something in me as well. Wow. It's really tough, Julian. I'm really sorry to hear that. At the same time, I can almost picture you, that change of mindset when you found a place that you felt and did belong to. That must have been a lovely feeling, just that sense of all the crap that you'd suffered, just falling away and just being free, I guess. Yeah, it was an incredible thing to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, forever grateful for that experience and that, that particular moment in my life after then went back to school so started a levels and managed to meet a very good group of friends and the bullying pretty much stopped and i wasn't sure why until i found out that a couple of the the friends uh, who i was really close with were sort of mature students that were 21, 22 and had sort of skipped a few years and, and dropped out and were coming back to finish off the A-levels. And they found out what happened to me sort of in the previous couple of years and what was sort of still happening and had words, basically. They got involved. <laughs> they oh. did. And things shut down pretty quickly. That first year back, first year my A-levels was pretty settled and I was quite happy still sailing. But I think at that point, I think it had switched in my mind. It was like, I, I want to sail professionally now. And I still applied to university. I still kind of did the, the normal path things. But when I applied to university, I applied to do nautical studies first time around, which is the degree career path into the Merchant Navy. So I think I had in my mind that I would do that because that would set me up with like a, a backup career that was still at sea would please my parents because I'd be going to university, but also I'd finish university and then I'd, I'd sail yachts for a living. That was that was the intention. Then at the start of what would have been like year 13, like upper six, I got really, really ill. I got diagnosed with ME, so severe chronic fatigue, which blew me to pieces, really. I just couldn't function. It's like a month before Christmas, so I'd been back at school for a couple of months. And I got ill at like a, a normal sort of infection bug, whatever, and just didn't get better. And it was put on courses and courses of steroids, still didn't get better. Was signed off school for two weeks, still didn't get better. And my doctor was eventually like, okay, this is Emmy. You're going to have to completely change everything about your life because there's no treatment for this. There's no anything for this. Sure. You're just going to have to, you're going to have to do 
as much as you can do, but your school and your family and your everything are going to have to be really understanding about this because you know, for some people, it, it just lays them out completely. Can I just um, ask, because it, it happened to a lad I was friends with in school, and this would have been the early 90s. I knew his mum quite well too, and she was a very forthright lady. And she had to work very hard to convince the school that he was even ill. Despite diagnosis, because he was off school for at least a year. And there was definitely a sense I picked up that some teachers still thought that basically he was taking the piss for a year, incredibly. Because his mum, she had to fight hard. Did that happen to you? My school were surprisingly okay about it. So I went from doing four A-levels to doing two. You know, there, there wasn't anything they could do to sort of stop me doing that. And I knew that I only needed to get two C's to get onto my university course. I'd applied and got a conditional offer to do nautical studies. So that was still, at that point, the plan. Because we didn't know how long it was going to last for either. So my school were like, okay, we'll do what you can. And that was pretty much it from then. Where I had the biggest issue was with the medical community, to be honest. My GP was quite happy to say, it's ME and we're going to work together to get you through it. But I had a, a load of blood tests done as, as part of being checked out. And he was like, there is, appears to be a slight issue with one of your liver enzymes. And I would be remiss if I didn't send you off to a specialist to have it checked out because it might account for some of your symptoms and there might be something they can do. This particular liver specialist, they were in Southampton. So I spent quite a lot of that year as well going back and forth to Southampton. Luckily, my dad had really good medical insurance to do his work. So I spent quite a lot of time going back and forth to Southampton with my mum, getting loads of different tests. And back then, a lot of specialists didn't believe it was a thing because the test for it was we've done all the tests and we can't identify something that's wrong with you. So it's ME. So it wasn't like... I could show someone a test result and say, I've got ME because that there wasn't a test for it. I'm not even sure there is now. So I had yeah specialists saying, well, it's definitely something and we're going to fix it. And my parents took that as a, okay, you're going to be better by the end of the year and you're going to then go off to university and everything's going to be fine. You know, that went on for, for quite a few months. And then eventually the specialists were like, well, we've run all the tests and we can't explain it. So, sorry about that. <laughs> I'd had like six or eight months of going back and forth and, and all this kind of hope put in that we'd be able to find something and, and fix it. And, you know, obviously that had been my parents' view as well, that this was going to be fixed and I'd be back to normal and go off to university. And yeah, it didn't, didn't come to anything. So about a week before I got my A-level results, I said to my parents, it doesn't matter what happens, I'm not going this year. I just don't have the energy, I can't function. How I got through my A-level exams, I have no idea. Stuttered through on a bit of residual knowledge and intelligence, really. And I got a B and a C, having gone into year 13, so been predicted four A's across four subjects. So I scraped the B and a C. And, yeah, and then so I, I just, without a plan, deferred. It's like, okay, we're going to have to work out a new plan and hope that I have some energy in a year's time. Wow. And did you have enough energy in a year's time? <laughs> well, this is where things changed again. So obviously all my friends went off to university and I was just stuck at home with my parents. This lasted for a couple of months and I still didn't really have a plan. Still didn't have any energy. And I came to a very odd moment of self-realisation. But I just remember 
thinking one day or probably over a series of days but on one day I made quite a big decision about it I was like you are seriously depressed you have fallen into a proper proper depression so without telling my parents I booked an appointment with my GP who had been helping me through my ME and stuff anyway went see him sort of told him what was going on he wasn't surprised yeah he'd seen what happened over the course of the year and, and the position I'd been forced to put myself into I was like it's not surprising that you're depressed really and now you've been stuck at home with your parents for two months with no plan no solution because as I say there was no like we can make this better by doing xyz it was just you've got to mm. hope that knocked me sideways a bit got put on antidepressants <laughs> picked them up from the chemist went home said hi mum and dad I have some things to tell you but then shortly after that someone from the Ocean Youth Trust phoned me and I'd been talking to a friend there and they sort of knew that I'd deferred and stuff and they knew what was going on. These were the people who I'd started sailing with when I was 16. They said, do you want to come and volunteer for us for a winter? Live with us in Southampton, do boat maintenance for a year, then, you know, volunteer during the sailing season. Like, yes. Yeah. And I sort of explained to them what the situation was, that I wasn't very well, that I might have varying energy levels, but all right, it's fine. Just come, just come hang out. It's better than you being stuck at home with your parents. Which again was one of those fairly incredible moments that just a very fortunate phone call and then the ability to drop everything and go. And how did you cope with that in terms of your energy level? Were you okay or? I was definitely better than being at home doing nothing. It was hard, but I mean, I was working six days a week, 10 hours a day doing a physical job. Even if I had been completely fine and not ill, I still would have been pretty tired doing what I was doing. And I was learning loads of new skills and stuff and interacting with a ton of different people. It was a good place to be. Got to the end of that year and and then I went to university, as was expected to start my nautical studies degree at the University of Plymouth when I was 19. Probably the appeasement of my parents. And also my parents had and have always had quite a hard time with both my illness and with my depression. They've really struggled to get their heads around it. They denied it a lot at first, both the illness, which, you know, it's like, we're going to fix this. And then with my depression, certainly at first, they had a similar sort of thing, just like, well, this is something that we can fix and will go away rather than this is a a potentially a chronic thing that is going to last for a long time. And it's something I still suffer with. It's not a thing that goes away. It's just something you learn to live with and, and adapt to. I don't know if it was a choice thing, like basically whether I wouldn't have been able to drop out and start sailing at that point I made the decision not to go to university and start sailing like whether I would have had the support from my parents to do that and been able to do that or whether I just felt a bit too much guilt and obligation towards them and that I just sort of took what was on paper an easier route uh, and how did that go terribly <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised oh, I'm sorry to hear it, though. Oh, <laughs> it, was, no. it was absolutely terrible yeah, it was a disaster. I was learning about things I didn't want to learn about, setting myself up on a career path I didn't want to be on, adopted some very abusive behaviours, drank too much, just all the normal stuff you do. But yeah, it was miserable. Yeah, I made some good friends there and, and people I'm still close with now. Guy's my best friend I met in halls at uni. Yeah, it just wasn't the place for me to be at all. So got to the end of that year, I then went away sailing, volunteering for a few weeks came home and again like two years before when I'd come home with a bottle of antidepressants came home and said to mum and dad I'm dropping out 
I've already told them, and the Ocean Youth Trust have offered me a job. So I'm going to go and be a professional yacht sailor. Sorry. <laughs> right. How did, how did that go down? Uh, my mum did not talk to me for a while. Wow. Um, yeah, quite some days, which is quite awkward as it was just the three of us at home. My dad had a much more pragmatic view. After a couple of days, he sort of sat down with me and was like, okay, how are we going to sort this? Are they going to pay you enough to be able to do this? You know, are you going to be able to you know, find somewhere over there to live? all the rest of it rather than try and talk me out of it which was never going to work so it takes a lot of courage to do that in my view you know i'm thinking about me as a a relatively young lad if i'd made the decision to drop out of university then i would have needed a fair bit of courage to face my parents (laughs) my dad especially and i would have to have been really really sure that i was doing the right thing did you have that certainty at that time or did it feel like a risk worth taking? And I think this is a pattern with how I make decisions. I know when I'm not happy and I know when something is being destructive to me as a person. And I'm very quick to identify that and to make a decision that moves me away from it. And that's mm. the more important thing for me. It was like I did not want to go back to university. It would have been terrible. It would have been horribly detrimental to my mental health. And luckily, I, I then had a, a job to, to go to. Yeah, It sounds quite a simple plan, actually. Just finding things that make you happy and not doing things that don't. And yet, <laughs> a lot of people struggle with it. <laughs> yeah, I, do. I, mean, I, I think I think there's got to be a degree of underlying confidence, which I, which I definitely have now. And then, um, did you carry on at the, the Ocean Youth Trust after that thing? Mm. The Ocean Youth Trust for a year, but then I was working my way up through different sailing qualifications, really. My aim was to start skipping boats as soon as I could. I wasn't going to be a yacht sailor until I retired. I knew that from the point I started. I'd met a lot of people who had gone the other way, so they had had office-based careers, had gotten into their sort of mid-30s, early 40s, and had burnt out and then moved into sailing. So I decided that I was going to start sailing younger, work as hard as I could to get as much out of it, but always know that it was going to be finite and sort of start thinking about an exit plan and think of it as like a 10 to 15 year career to get the most out of. So when I started full time, that was the plan, get up to being a skipper as quickly as possible. Yeah, so I was with the Ocean Youth Trust for a bit, then I moved into a bit more corporate stuff. My first skippering jobs were in uh, sort of doing corporate day sailing for companies and, and stuff like that. Did some of that for a couple of years, did some teaching as well, some instructing people. Once I'd done enough skippering over the course of two or three years and sort of had enough experience, I went back to sail training and, and worked for a company called the Toolships Youth Trust. And that was where I was for about you know, five or six years on and off skippering for them, doing essentially what I'd been doing when I was 16, but as skipper rather than as crew. So taking groups of you know, 10 young people from various different backgrounds. So mix of inner city groups, youth groups, young offenders, people with varying special needs, the full range of people have them usually for five to seven days. So it'd be 10 young people, two members of staff that came with them, a couple of volunteer watch leaders, and usually paid skipper and, and either a paid or volunteer first mate um, would be sort of the full makeup. So yeah, 16 on a 72-foot boat on the south coast of England most of the time. Is it, is it me or is the combination of a 72-foot boat in the English Channel and how many... Kids, ten. Is that 
a good combination of situations. <laughs> really? <laughs> Once you're used to it, it's fine. Both sides sailed on for the tall ships you trust. They were originally built for, have you heard of the BT Global Challenge? Yeah. Uh, they're the boats that did that. And then they were retired after that and bought by the Tall Ships Youth Trust. So I remember when I was growing up on the Wirral, we'd go every so often, we'd go and see the Tall Ships, go down the Mersey. But they were a lot more like three masted yeah. wooden schooners, I guess. Yeah. This is something different. This is more like a, a sporting yacht. Yeah, sort more of like thing. a yeah, more regular yacht. Not a not a tall ship, not a Master and Commander style tool ship, but a um, more of a, a big dinghy, really, more sails and weighing 50 tons. But they were built for a team of people to sail around the world. And the way those boats were built was that you can't do anything on your own. They instill teamwork into you. And so whether it's with adults or whether it's with a bunch of 14-year-olds, all the principles are the same. And in fact, 14-year-olds tend to be a lot easier to teach than adults because adults like to listen less sailing with kids is great the reality of sail training is that sailing is actually a very small part of what you're doing the biggest thing especially for youth groups and stuff or young people in difficult situations is that you're just removing them from the situation that they're in and the situation that they spend their life in and youth workers would say to us i've never seen these young people like this i've managed to get so much more effective work done with them this week because they're not surrounded by their usual triggers. They're not surrounded by you know, those friends who instill bad habits into them or they're not constantly stressed about their mum or their kid sister or whatever it is. They're able to be away and can focus on something else. Sailing is then just sort of a tool for that, something to do whilst all the other stuff's going on. And there's teaching young people how to cook, how to clean, how to just live with each other. You know, it's a, a small space and you've got 16 of you. You have to learn to respect each other pretty quick. That's really like the essence and what you're trying to get out of it. And then sailing is just, yeah, what you do along the way to get you from A to B. It's kind of what you got out of it too, right? When you first went on a tall ship, if you like, when you were 16, it took you away from that situation. Yeah, and that's, I think, what then drew me back into to sail training to give back, really. I think that's what made me good at it as well. I didn't necessarily have exactly the same experiences or many of the same experiences as the young people I was meeting but I could relate in a lot of ways I could relate to being in a, in a horrible situation in, in my own life and needing that release and needing something different the classic one with that as well is, is school and and the world generally is so academically focused and if you're not good if you're not intelligent if you're not bright enough in a purely academic way like school and, and education generally can be a real struggle for people take people sailing and suddenly they're learning practical skills a bit of engineering a bit of sailing a bit of just something that isn't boat learning that in itself can be a massive change for people realizing that there's something else and i mean that's what it did for me was i mean even though i was smart as a kid i i had nothing that i was passionate about and didn't know what else was open to me. But then going sailing, like, okay, this, there are other things, there are other paths, there are other ways other than the, just the standard linear path that you can take. And just because I'm not good at this thing over here doesn't mean that my, I can't contribute to society, I can't have an interesting career, I can't, I can't do something that I really care about and I'm passionate about. Those young people come on and, and experience this and then maybe go away and think, okay, now I want to go and be a plumber or a bricklayer or a mechanic. Start looking at apprenticeships. That's the win right there. Just allowing people to see something different. 
what you're saying does ring true with what quite a few other people have said, actually, which is this concept that even when you finish school, this idea of not really knowing where you're going. And more than that, though, because obviously, you know, you're quite young, you don't know where you're going, not even aware of where you could go. That does seem to come up quite a lot. And I can certainly empathise with that. So you were doing the Toolships Youth Trust for quite some time, weren't yep. you? And you basically, if I've got this right, you built that up to the point where you managed to skip a, you, you weren't just doing the South Coast anymore. You, you'd kind of spread your wings a bit, right? Yeah, the Toolships Youth Trust did a lot of adult voyages as well. So we'd, especially in the wintertime. Um, so we used to do quite a lot of stuff around different parts of Europe and over to the Caribbean and back each year as well. I had a nice couple of weeks in Norway, had quite a few trips down to sort of Spain, Portugal area and then the last big thing I did was skipping back from the Caribbean for Isle of the Azores which was in yeah 2016. It was cool it was really fun I'd done two Atlantic crossings before then one as first mate when I was doing more corporate sailing and then one as I was just paid crew one winter but yeah I was asked to skip a boat back not many people want to skip a boat back across the Atlantic because if you're skippering from east to west it gets warmer every day and generally, it's downwind, nice, easy, gentle sailing. If you're going from the UK to the Caribbean, you'll start in the UK in October. Sail down to usually the Canaries, hang out there for a couple of weeks, leave the Canaries sometime in, in November, arrive in the Caribbean in December when it's nice and warm. I flew out to the Caribbean on New Year's Eve to bring a boat back. And we left on January the 7th, got back to the UK February the 4th, 5th, I think. So if you think every single day is getting colder as you're coming <laughs> back, as you're heading north, and yeah, it's getting colder and colder and worse and worse weather. But yeah, there were 12, 13 of us on board. It's quite a small crew because again, yeah, it's the less popular way to travel. But yeah, it was really fun. Um, a really good group of people. A few had sailed before, a few with no sailing experience at all, which was great. You're kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, a couple of people who yeah just hadn't sailed before, but were like, I'm going to go do this. This looks like fun because it's advertised. There's no experience necessary. We'll just we'll just teach you. We don't usually expect people to take us at our word for a trip like that. Usually, you expect <laughs> people to <laughs> have done something. But no, a couple of people were like, yeah, never sailed before. This will be fun. Just rocked yeah, up, like what's, yeah. which, which end goes in the water? What's going on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 35 days at sea for. God. Yeah. And it was, it was a 35 day trip. Um, so we did Antigua to the Azores in, I think, 16 days. And then we had a week there. And then we did um, the Azores back to the UK in, in seven days, seven or eight days. Yeah. And some pretty, pretty horrible weather along the way as well. Yeah. And the, the worst was the night before we got into the Azores, where we had strong gales, very big seas, sort of 20 foot seas, very strong gales, pitch black. Yeah. Quite intimidating weather being quite thrown about the place quite a lot of rain trying to bring down sails and put up smaller sails and stuff in in the pitch black in um, 40 50 mile an hour winds and 20 foot seas is quite an experience by then so this was 2016 i had completely retrained i knew i was gonna stop sailing very very soon yeah to do something that i've been building towards for quite a while and that felt like a really yeah a really fitting ending to that career really mm. it was really nice um, and yeah, I then stopped sailing about four months later and haven't sailed since. No, not even just in a dinghy or something? No, no I haven't set foot on a boat, haven't thought about it really. Yeah, haven't missed it, haven't, haven't anything. 
What? That's so hardcore. Like, what gives you the satisfaction now that you got from from sailing? Are they comparable? The job that you have now compared to to, mm. to skip? They're different, and I think it's is something that's quite hard to compare. So my aim is always is always working out how I can best use whatever my skills and talents are to affect the most positive change for the most number of people. And it's about how I can do that whilst maintaining at least some sort of work-life balance and some sort of happiness in my own life, which I'm actually getting a lot better at doing as I get older. Mm. You don't seem to feel, but I think I would feel quite wistful. I'd, I'd feel like that was a part of my life I wasn't going to get back anymore. But you don't seem to feel that way. You seem happy that you had it and mm. now you're enjoying where you're at whereas I think I'm a bit more kind of backward looking and I'd be you know dreaming of being out on the ocean again instead of stuck in an office in Bristol <laughs> I am very grateful for that period in my life but also it if you want to have a, a good personal life it's not necessarily the best of careers to have yeah. it wasn't particularly conducive to to relationships particularly to much of anything really and as I sort of got later into my 20s and was essentially like getting pretty lonely by that point I'd had relationships but then that hadn't worked out after a while and I mean I think that's one of the reasons I didn't want to do it forever as well was because I knew that it wasn't necessarily a sustainable thing to do it's also just like quite physically and emotionally exhausting as well you meet a whole new group of people each week generally who come with a lot of issues and it's very intense work that you're doing you're doing it for four or five weeks at a time then you have a couple of weeks off where you are spending your time catching up with everyone you know and then you're back at sea again for four or five weeks and then you're just doing that back and forth back and forth Mm. so yeah it can just be very very intense and Mm. you know i get i got a huge amount out of it and the skills i've taken forward are i've learned so much and Mm. i've got some good stories and some good memories out of it as well so i stopped sailing initially in 2013 i went to do a master's for a year and that was um, at maastricht right so yeah, completely yeah. different country yeah so yeah studied in the netherlands for a year That's quite brave i would say <laughs> yeah it was cool it was good there's a, a united nations university attached to the university of maastricht there were 100 of us from 35 different countries on our program wow which was just incredible after a year at Maastricht, where I did really, really well, met like all these great people and had my master's, I think naively I expected to find it easier to find work and find something fulfilling afterwards. And I didn't. And I actually got a job working for the Liberal Democrats as a campaign organiser for a year. So during the 2015 election cycle, and everyone knows how that went for the Liberal Democrats. So that wasn't <laughs> the best of experiences either. And actually during 2015, so I mean, I mentioned, yeah, mental health problems throughout my, my 20s. And I think I'd got to a stage where I, I thought I was okay. And I thought I was, I was just living with it. It was just fine. I would have ups and downs. I would have periods of time where I would crash and be wiped out for a few weeks. But like, generally speaking, I was, I was fine. And I was living with it. 2015, I had two proper breakdowns, like really, really quite severe breakdowns one quite near the start and one in yeah like september time i'd moved to a new city so i'd let you know i'd left university on quite a high i'd moved to a new city i was pretty lonely i was single at the time wasn't 100 percent sure if what i was going into was what i wanted to go into it was all very new i was away from everything i knew and realized in that moment that actually i hadn't built any particularly good 
coping mechanisms or any particular level of resilience. So when I did have a, a breakdown, which seemed to come out of nowhere, and like I'd, I'd sort of got quite used to tracking my depression, and I would notice if things were getting bad, and I'd be able to take steps to sort of deal with it, or just be able to like take some time off. But yeah, it came out of nowhere. It was essentially overnight and I was wiped. I was completely out of it and um, still had to work and was still doing a very intense job and was campaigning and resorted to a lot of the destructive behaviours I'd had before. So I was working 12 hours a day. Then I was exercising way too much, not eating enough, drinking too much, sleeping very badly, getting up and doing it all again, which is not a particularly productive way of dealing with one's depression. Like I say, I, I used to compulsively overeat when I was a 16-year-old. That turned into a very bad relationship with my body and with, with my image. And for the longest time, I used food as a, a punishment to myself. I would essentially undereat and overexercise as punishment when I was in a bad way, which isn't, isn't a very good way of dealing with things. So in, yeah, in 2015, I had this sort of first breakdown and then started seeing a therapist having seen one in my early 20s and then hadn't seen one for for 10 years and I started seeing one every week for what ended up being about two and a half years or so which was the best decision I've ever made mm. yeah and then I had another quite bad blip in the, in the September and the decision I made after the September was that I needed to so basically the job I was doing wasn't wasn't working and mm. you know whether it was the job or just the situation I was in was irrelevant at that point I needed to give myself a a sufficient break that I could focus on myself for a while and actually take steps to get myself healthy rather than, you know, basically been ignoring it for 10 years and surviving. That was when I made the decision to go back to sailing because it was like, I can do this easily. I can always get the work. It pays enough. I'll be fine. And then can spend some time getting some therapy, focusing in on the things that I need to focus in on and then working out what it is I want to do for real next after I'm healthy so then I went back to sailing for a few months so I think that's probably one of the reasons as well why when I did get to leave it was a bit of a relief because it was finally escaping it and able to not have to rely on it and fall back on it because I didn't want to I wanted to go and do something else because I'd spent all this time retraining and I wanted to be a, a better healthier person and, and be able to go and do something else that I was passionate about mm. I can see where the social science side of things comes in, in the sense that it seems like there's a very big thread running through your life around giving back and the idea of helping others and social science and understanding the needs of different groups of people is is a way of doing that. It still strikes me that maybe you weren't completely sure about that because you, you did your degree in law and then you did your master's in something to do, sorry, was it international development? It was public policy and human development. Oops, sorry. Okay. So is that you still kind of casting around slightly there for where to go? Or did you have a really good idea what you wanted to do next? There was a time when I had thought about being a lawyer. I wanted to be a barrister uh, mm. for a bit. And then when I was getting towards the end of my degree, I realised I had neither the background nor the contacts nor the anything to go off and be a barrister so I'd probably have to try something else and I think I had more of an interest at that point in policy and governance and, and stuff like that I think spending a lot of time sailing working with youth workers and stuff who are constantly trying their best and constantly trying to do everything they can for other people but are always met by resistance whether it's local or government policy or whether it's funding or whether it's whatever there's always something that's a struggle for them and I think that sort of perked my interest in moving in that direction into more of the sort of the 
policy and governance space and into more of the social science space. And um, I think the reason I took a, a more, so my master's was very quant heavy, so very numbers, numbers based. And that fits with, with my mind. I was always very good at maths growing up and have always been interested in numbers, data, statistics, kind of that, that side of things. So that fit very well with what I wanted to do. I think as well, the reason why I did a law degree was because I think that it's a degree that you can turn to a lot of things. I mean, I think as a degree, it shows that you can study, you can apply yourself, you can, you know, you need to be able to write, you need to be able to interpret stuff, analyze stuff. There's a lot, that you, there's a lot of skills that you learn through doing it. And then if you accept the fact that you're going to have to do some postgrad training after you've done that degree, then it doesn't necessarily matter what that ends up being. If you know going into it that you're going to have to do some postgrad training, whether it's, you know, to become a, a solicitor or a barrister or to go and do a master's. It doesn't really make too much odds what that is. But it was, uh, if I'd done a degree in anything else, I, I might have been a bit restricted when at that point being a lawyer was still a, a, a potential option at that time. And then, yeah, public policy and human development. I mean, it, I think that as well really sparked my interest in the environment. And I think prior to the Environment Agency, I worked for a, a national domestic abuse charity doing as a senior research analyst for them. And I knew that I wanted my next move to be into environment rather than in anything else, really. Yeah, I'd always had that, that kind of passion for, for the environment and a big interest in climate change and in renewable energy and stuff like that and so yeah there was a, a desire to move into that whenever I could it was more about opportunity than anything um, mm. and you know when I was applying for work and eventually got the last job that I did that was a lot of applications a lot of failed applications to get to get that role and so it was yeah taking something that I knew would push me in at least vaguely the right direction and then now yeah I'm feeling you know more more settled and yeah, into the sort of path that I want to be in. That said, I could completely change my mind in 10 years' time and do something completely different. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how I feel about asking this question. It feels quite a superficial question to ask you, given everything you've been through. So I always ask people, what's your definition of success? And normally I expect something to do with something to do with their career. And I've got a funny feeling you're going to, not going to tell me that. You're going to tell me something a bit more profound, whereas I would be thinking, oh, you know, success is doing well at your job or something like that. But maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. I'll let you understand. <laughs> so I was thinking about this, uh, this question the other day and I remembered something. So this was just after my first semester at Maastricht and I, my parents were still living in Jersey. I went back for Christmas and we had a bunch of family over for uh, pre-Christmas drinks and I was chatting to one of my uncles and he asked what I was up to and I said what I was doing and he said so you're stopping sailing and I was like that's that's the plan and he said so well that seems crazy so what so everything you've learned everything you've done that's just that's just wasted that's just pointless then and I, I think at the time I didn't have a very good response to it I imagine we were both drunk but <laughs> thinking about it now there's this phrase which is a very ridiculous phrase which is uh, usually applied to a skill and doesn't really credit for reality. But it's imagine if you could be 1% better each day at something. Think how good you'd be in a year if just every day you were 1% better than you were the day before at reading, writing, whatever it is, whatever, you, you, you know, whatever your chosen skill is, learning a language, whatever. Imagine how good you'd be in a year. 
and it's you know it's a very simplistic way of looking at it but i think that's what i aim for that's what makes me happy that's that's what keeps me driven is just trying to be a little bit better every day trying new things learning new stuff i have an incredible drive for learning i just want to experience lots of stuff i want to do lots of things i want to be involved in everything you know it doesn't have to be just about your job there's periods of time when you think okay i want to be better at being a good partner being a good father son whatever it is and other things in your life pause but you work hard on those and every day try and be a bit better at that mm-hmm. yeah you, know, you pick out hobbies skills every day try and be a bit better at that even if other stuff's paused and then maybe it's like okay i'm going to focus on my career for a bit and i started at the environment agency what 15 months ago now and so that's been most of my focus you know, over the last year really has been learning as much as i can about what is a new a new place to work i've not worked for government before i've not so i want to learn as much as i can i want to get better every day and mm. yeah that's it that to me is success and it's something that maybe can't be measured maybe manifests itself in different ways maybe looks frivolous or pointless or whatever to other people you know if you, you know, especially if like you think you stall out your career for a bit and focus on like some skills or some hobbies you want to do or or like just focus on something completely different for a while if i can if i can be 65 70 and still wanting to learn every day and still wanting to try new things every day and not be bored that to me will have been a very successful life do you ever find that you're always striving for something? There's a sense there to me of, of not being happy, of like you wouldn't strive for it if you were happy with where you were. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I get that. Um, and I am a lot better than I was at it. The working and striving for new things is a hang-up of when I was, when I was younger, certainly. I, nothing I did was particularly good enough. And from a personal perspective, that was what was projected onto me, was that the things I did weren't good enough and that I wasn't meeting whatever my theoretical potential was. You know, certainly when I got ill and then dropped out of university and stuff, that, as I say, disappointed quite a few people. And, and then I think because I, was, I had quite a few years of not being able to do the things I wanted to do, being quite limited by health problems, whether physical or mental. There has been a degree of catching up, I guess. There's a big part of me that, that always wants to prove that I can do it anyway. When I was just starting in work, you know, the stigma around mental health was horrendous. And I had some very, very bad experiences in different workplaces at different times. I had a lot of years of feeling very insufficient and very not feeling good enough, really. Not feeling like I was worth a lot. And I think a big thing that pushes me as well now is, you know, part of my drive for helping other people is about not wanting people to suffer in the way that I did at various points. Pushing as hard as I can to try and make things better for other people, to try and give a voice to people who can't talk to. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I had no one who I could talk to. I had no one who, I had no way of giving voice to the, to the things I was I was going through. And I've got to a point now where, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have brought it up with an employer because certainly my earliest employers were not particularly forgiving of it. And it was a thing that just wasn't very understood. I'll just tell people now. Mm. Uh, I'll just talk about it. And I do it with, with managers, with colleagues, with whatever. I'll just talk about it. If they have a bad reaction to it, I now know that I'm, I'm 
okay enough and strong enough that I'll be fine. You know, again, if I end up in a hostile work environment, I'll just leave. I'll go do something else. It's fine. But also I know that there are a lot of other people who are not in that position and that anything I can do by pushing myself, by working hard, by striving to get into a position where I can affect some change for people, that's what I'm going to do. There is that sitting under there as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Certainly over the last two or three years, I have gotten a lot better at balancing things. still work hard and I still push myself, but I push myself a lot less than I used to because I've burnt out too many times. I'm a lot more comfortable with the person I am now, so I don't feel the need to beat myself up as much. And I'm you know, a lot, mm. a lot happier with what I'm doing and the contribution I'm making and the things that I do and the way I am with people. The fact that I can have this conversation with you is a, like a massive step forward for me even a couple of years ago. Being able to quite freely talk about everything is, yeah, quite a big deal. Well, you should like yourself. <laughs> You're a good guy. I think it's amazing just the, the the drive to give back and to to help other people who may be in your situation. I can see how that is a healthy thing to drive you forward rather than something a bit more pernicious, like wanting to make a lot of money, for example. You know, it, it feels like it, that there's something more to that, that that is satisfying in and of itself. But yeah, I just in terms of you speaking to me as you have done, I, I'm so grateful tune in because you've been you've been incredibly honest and open and I'm sure and I hope that people anybody listening to this you know would draw a lot of comfort from what you've said I certainly have and I just I've really enjoyed despite the clear problems that you've had I've, I've really enjoyed just hearing your story and just listening to what you've learned as you've gone along which has been a lot <laughs> yeah thank you no, I mean I've I, yeah I've really enjoyed it it's been a, it's um but no yeah. it's been it's been a yeah really fun experience doing this um yeah my <laughs> first my first podcast uh, interview ever so it's oh, well you've been a fantastic guest thank you very much you're welcome well there you have it huge thanks to my guest julian watkins for taking the time to talk to me and for being so honest and open with his answers Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his cover artwork, to Anna Gunn for editing support, to Acast for hosting, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you can add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, find me on LinkedIn, or you can now look me up on Twitter using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.